market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli coming to you live from separate locations. Kramer has the morning off. Coming off that strong start to September and the S&P's 21st record high of the year. Future strong again as the street raises targets on names like Peloton, NVIDIA and Tesla. Oil steady as signs of demand continue to improve. Our roadmap begins with a future surge. The S&P and the Nasdaq looking to build on Tuesday's record closes. Can this second half rally continue? Then a stimulus stalemate, the latest from Washington, as both Pelosi and Mnuchin talk COVID relief. And later, it's been one of the biggest winners of the pandemic, why Peloton is getting a new street-high price target over at J.P. Morgan. It's actually not a bad place to start right there, guys, uh, because for the second day in a row, David, uh, we've had some analysts uh, raising targets even on names that they maintain at neutral. Today, it's B of A which yesterday kept Tesla at a new, or Apple at a neutral, but Wamsi Mohan upped his target, acknowledging momentum. Today, a B of A does the same thing with Tesla, arguing that this new uh, equity funding, uh, issuing new comment over time, is going to fulfill growth in and of itself, and their price objective goes to 500 plus. Yeah. Listen, every day brings more things that for me are reminiscent of the late 90s. It's hard to avoid it. I mean, I made some of the comparisons yesterday. Many high quality companies, of course, are getting uh, the, the fuel uh, this time as opposed to what was a broader spectrum of companies, perhaps at much higher multiples, many of which did not have great business models. But it's hard not to when you see these analysts twisting and turning and raising price targets. By the way, they've been right. I mean, just the same way that, uh, you know, Henry Blodgett was right on his $400 target way back when in 1996 <laughs> or eight on Amazon. And just the same way many of the analysts were right during that period as well. Didn't make it any crazier. And, you know, Mike, what are, what are the latest numbers on Tesla? I mean, I think it's trading at about 1,200 times earnings and 73 yeah. times sales. Um, I think those are the numbers. Tesla's and pretty listen, singular just that. in that respect. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Tesla it is pretty it much is. its own species in that respect, at least in the current uh, <laughs> environment. I mean, a lot of people have made the comparison, by the way, Tesla to Qualcomm back then, which is the one stock to seize on uh, to, that re represents and embodies the momentum of this massive new market back then would be, you know, cell phones. Um, and the stock charts look similar, although Qualcomm immensely crazier ultimately uh, at the highs, even though on market cap level it was not. I looked back, it went into the S&P at something like a $25, $30 billion market cap. So this market right now is, is tacking on massive chunks of market uh, value across the board. And, and Carl, you mentioned about the, the price target action. Look, analysts sit there and say, OK, if this is what the market is willing to pay for you know, future users, for revenue growth, for whatever, it's not my place necessarily to say the overall market is priced wrong. I look at what the comparable companies are, are valued at, and so I'm just going to follow them higher. Obviously, that chase represents something, I guess, of an overshoot phase that we're probably entering or have entered at this point. Uh, but, you know, even the overall market, the NASDAQ 100 was contained at or below 20 times forward earnings for five years coming into this phase. It's jumped in a hurry to 30. The S&P 500 was contained to the ceiling of 18 times forward earnings. It's now at 23. So the market is basically saying, 
you have this early cycle economic recovery dynamic at the same time that you have kind of late cycle risk appetites and this public excitement for stocks. It's all feeding into higher valuations. Also at a time when at least right now people are willing to bet you're not going to get the kind of policy missteps you got after 2009 with slow responses and a sovereign debt crisis and a debt ceiling showdown and a taper tantrum. If you put all that together, I think you have people saying, fine, I'll take it. I'll pay what the market is is quoted for right now. And that's the makings, I guess, of some kind of an overshoot ultimately. Yeah, although it's hard to get a taper tantrum when, uh, you know, a quarter of the S&P is five names and they're all benefiting from the same tech trends that we've been talking about for months. Uh, David, at the same time, we are seeing some very well-known bulls. Tom Lee of Fundstrat is a good example today who remains very constructive on what he calls epicenter stocks, travel, leisure, industrials. But uh, today acknowledges the number of new highs is declining even as the S&P goes up. The VIX Back to 25 is something that is reminiscent, a clue at least, of what we saw back in 2000. He's not changing his view, but this morning he does say it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think a lot of people are keeping an eye on it. Uh, At the same time, if you are a portfolio manager who didn't own Apple or Amazon or Netflix or Tesla or Peloton or Zoom or, I mean, we can keep going for a while here, guys, or PayPal uh, or Teladoc. You know, you're trailing uh, and trailing big. And always the question becomes, by the way, Tom uh, Lee does a lot of good uh, stats on this stuff. You know, what do you need to buy to try to catch up? Or are you comfortable telling your investor base, hey, listen, I wasn't willing to pay those kinds of multiples and therefore my performance is lagged. I mean, it's a it's a difficult position to be in. But the risk certainly, Mike, would seem to be seem to be getting greater given these higher multiples at the same time. The simple trade was to just follow the liquidity trade, follow the Fed, and get into these kinds of assets clearly over these last four or five months. Right. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it that when prices go up, risk goes up on, and, and, and forward returns go down. You can, we can explain why the market's willing to pay these valuations for the greatest companies in the world that lead the NASDAQ right now based on where corporate bonds are trading, based on their stability of cash flows and all these other things. But that doesn't mean that it translates into over the next 10 and 20 years, they're going to be the outstanding performers or they're valued for great, uh, you know, superior returns over that time. So that's the trade-off you obviously got. I'm looking at a lot of the shorter-term stuff. I'm sure that also Tom Lee and other uh, folks who've gotten this right are looking at, which is, you know, this, this rush to buy further short-term upside bets in the biggest and fastest moving stocks in the options market. So just in very simple terms, if you want to buy upside exposure for a 5% gain in a stock, you're probably paying three to four times what you would pay for protection against a 5% decline. That should not be that kind of mismatch. And it shows you that the public is kind of stampeding in the Apples and the Teslas of the world in this direction. It can't last forever. It's You want to call it you know, an overheat. You want to call it the makings of a, of a blow-off. Whatever it is, it can go on a long time because it's not connected to anything like the ADP number that came out today that's going to derail that process in itself. <laughs> yep, uh, ADP did disappoint up 428,000. Uh, uh, we were looking for 1.2 million, David, although uh, the chatter this morning obviously is that ADP has basically stopped becoming a good tell on what the jobs number may say on the following Friday because of subsequent misses in, in, in various directions. But to Mike's point about risk protection, uh, again, a lot of chatter this morning, not specifically about the VIX, but the way the VIX relates to the election 
and overall election risk, which Bloomberg today says is the most expensive risk event uh, in history. As we're beginning to see various scenarios spun out, uh, David, where, for example, the president wins the night of November 3rd uh, on, uh, on votes that are counted at the ballot, but then Biden comes along a few days later, theoretically, and wins if you count uh, mail-in ballots more slowly. So those are the kinds of things that investors are going to be asked to process in the coming nine weeks. Yeah, uh, Frank Lutz, I think, uh, Lutz on, uh, on Squawk Box this morning, the pollster making that point as well, that that scenario is possible given that it is believed that more Democratic voters will use a vote by mail than Republican voters. And to your point, Carl, that would be a very difficult situation for the country, one would imagine. Um, and there are a lot of scenarios you can, you can imagine at this point that would be somewhat difficult. Mike, I have no idea how the stock market will yeah. react to a, uh, an election that is sort of that hangs in the balance. Uh, we know the last one was extraordinarily close. Uh, it could come down to a couple of states and, frankly, a few thousand votes. It's always possible, given it was 71,000 votes in three states last time that swung the election to President Trump in terms of the Electoral College, despite, uh, I think, three million uh, or so votes more for his opponent in the uh, overall vote totals. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I don't know. I will defer to you for history as a guide in any way, if it's possible, Perhaps the 2000 election, although unfortunately it would seem the vitriol even now, 20 years later, is far higher than it was then. Yeah, although at that point you were working with unprecedented levels to that date of vitriol, I would argue, and polarization. Um, so, yes. And if you look back on that period, it's actually sort of interesting. Uh, you were already, already in the, the opening months of a bad bear market for stocks uh, once we had that hung election for, for a while. And as we look back on that phase, I don't think anybody points to the disputed election result as decisive in how the market behaved or even how the economy did after that phase. So maybe that's slightly reassuring. One point, though, Carl, on this this kind of bulge in demand for protection for vol against volatility mm -hmm. around the election. We've been pointing at this for a while. The actual market has been very calm. It's been in this very steady uptrend. You would not expect to see that much of a premium to be placed on volatility protection in, in October. It's obviously around the election, but it also leads you to ask, is the market now basically pre-hedged against that? So the fact that everyone's flinching against this possibility is probably, all else being equal, better than going into it blind and thinking everything's going to be fine. So I don't think it's as easy <laughs> as saying the market is pricing in some turmoil, therefore we'll get turmoil. Right. That's, that's an excellent point. Uh, and maybe we're building a lot of that in uh, early, uh, to your, as you said. Meanwhile, as it pertains to stimulus, we heard from the Treasury Secretary yesterday saying he's ready to go back and resume negotiations with uh, the Speaker over uh, aid for related to COVID. Eamon Javers has more on that this morning. Hi, Eamon. Yeah, hi, Carl. That's right. The uh, Treasury Secretary was on Capitol Hill yesterday. You know, he was asked about this idea that a lot of people in our area have been discussing. You know, is this a V-shaped recovery? What kind of a letter would you suggest? Uh, the president yesterday suggested that this is a super V re recovery, steep drop down and a sharp rebound. Uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, though, uh, wouldn't go all the way to super V. Here's what he said. The president, the entire administration thinks there is more work to be done. Let's not get lost on different letters of the alphabet. Let's move forward on a bipartisan basis on areas that we can agree upon because there are clearly parts of the economy that, that need more work. 
So the Treasury Secretary there saying that the economy needs more stimulus, urging Congress to get behind the president's effort to at least do something. The, the administration has been pushing the sort of skinnier proposal rather than the broader effort that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats want. After that hearing, uh, Mnuchin and Pelosi did have a phone call last night. Nancy Pelosi uh, putting out a release uh, last night saying the call was 36 minutes long, but expressing some real skepticism about the administration's approach. From her perspective, she raised the question of whether the administration uh, is taking this seriously enough, in effect, uh, and whether they're willing to invest the kind of money that she thinks is needed here to, to break the logjam uh, and to get this economy moving again. So some real differences remain, but they did have that 36-minute call last night, we're told. So that is, you know, some indication that talks are continuing, guys. Back over to you. All right, Eamon, I imagine we'll talk again uh, relatively soon. Uh, Eamon Javers in Washington. We'll take a quick break here. A lot of news to get to uh, on this uh, Wednesday before the Labor Day weekend. We'll get to Macy's earnings. Uh, there is an upgrade this morning of Zillow Group. Price, and target, price target increases, as we said, on NVIDIA and Peloton. When we continue in a moment. Oh, welcome back. Did want to update our viewers. Uh, not too often we see an unsolicited or so-called hostile offer. Uh, we do have one this morning involving a company that I know fairly well, Altice USA, announcing it's presented an offer to Kojiko. Now, many of our viewers may not be particularly well, uh, well acquainted with that company, but it's a fairly large operator of cable systems in Canada. But it also has a presence here in the United States as well. And uh, this morning, Altice in uh, partnership with Rogers Communications, one of the larger Canadian cable uh, and telecommunications companies, has made an all-cash uh, offer uh, to acquire this company uh, for a price of uh, $106, or Canadian, and 53 cents. There's a look at Altice, by the way, but we also want to keep an eye on this Canadian company for what would be uh, not owned already by Rogers, uh, uh, one s a set of their shares, and another 134.22 per share for each CCA subordinate voting share. All of this amounts to roughly what would be a 30% or so premium for the company. It's an interesting company in that it actually has a control shareholder um, that only owns 10% of the economics but has the controlling votes because of super voting shares. And so in this case, Altice USA is paying a premium for those shares that includes 800 million Canadian, about $612 million, to the Audet family, this is the company that controls this, for their ownership interests. And that would include 100% of the multiple voting shares. So a huge premium, over 500% for the control stake, 30% for all public shareholders is what Altice, in combination with Rogers, is offering here. Um, and then they're going to split the company if they were to actually be successful in actually getting it. And Altice would take what are 1.1 million U.S. subs for something called Atlantic Broadband, which is a subsidiary of Kojiko, uh, Kojiko excuse me, uh, and... Um, and Rogers would take the remainder, even with some tax consequences. Apparently, they feel that it would be a very good deal. Overall, about $7.8 billion is U.S. is what this, uh, this unsolicited bid is currently worth. About $3.6 billion U.S. of that would be Altice's responsibility. The remainder would be Rogers. So we'll keep an eye on all these shares. I don't know, guys, if we had an opportunity to see Kojiko and how it's trading this morning again. Not often we see these unsolicited. This is uh, interesting in that you have a control shareholder with a, not that large an economic stake, but the voting shares for which they're being offered an enormous premium, apparently part of a family, some of which are involved in the business, others of which are not involved in the business. 
Uh, and so it's it almost reminiscent in a way of way back when, one of my favorite breaking stories, when Rupert Murdoch made that offer for Dow Jones, trying to split the Bancroft family as well, given the huge possibility of, of enormous profits, I should say, that, that he was offering them uh, for that. There's a look at all the stocks. We'll see how Kojiko trades. Of course, again, the price for uh, of 106.53, uh, Carl uh, and Mike, for uh, the public shareholders there, much larger for the family-controlled voting shares. Over to you. Wow, that's fascinating. And I was on the desk with you that day that uh, you broke the Dow Jones news. That, that brings back some memories. Uh, we'll get yeah, more on that later, right. David. In the meantime, take a quick break here. Uh, we'll get to Macy's and some of their e-com numbers. Uh, gross margins, not too bad. Stocks up 7% pre-market. Guests reinstating the dividend as well. Stocks up almost 18%. We're back in a minute. Last week, it was Goldman Sachs upped its target on Peloton to 96. Today, J.P. Morgan does it better at uh, 105, talking about some delivery wait times for bikes that you have to see to believe. We'll get more on that in a moment. Stocks up 9%. Getting some clarity and more specifics on those job cuts at Ford. Let's get to Phil LeBeau this morning. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl, take a look at shares of Ford. The company has just sent this letter to employees basically saying that it will be offering early retirement to those employees who qualify. And we're talking about white collar salary workers here in the United States. The goal, eliminating 1,400 jobs. And in this letter, they basically say, look, if we can get to 1,400 jobs through voluntary layoffs or, or early retirement offers, we should say, great. If not, then they'll look at involuntary layoffs. So that would be 1,400 jobs. And just as a point of reference, they make it clear that the goal here is to get to 10% EBIT margins in North America. And they're not there yet, despite the fact that they announced a restructuring, an $11 billion restructuring uh, last year, a couple of years ago, that still hasn't paid off. They're still in the process of trying to get there despite cutting 7,000 salary jobs. But now they're going to eliminate another 1,400 here in the U.S. Guys, back to you. All right, Phil. Um, it's hard to turn every conversation about autos, Phil, into Tesla, but I did notice this morning that Tesla's market cap is now equal to all 18 of their developed market competitors. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. I know that it was more than the top five automakers in the world combined. And just as a statistic to drive home how wacky this is those top five automakers we're talking about toyota vw nissan renault mitsubishi that alliance along with gm and hyundai you add up all of their sales last year carl they sold over 44 million vehicles how many did tesla sell last year Three hundred sixty-seven thousand. yeah uh, certainly the price action is uh, no longer related to, to unit sales, Phil. But it was nice to no. see us get to 15 million run rate uh, for the year yesterday. Uh, Phil Abel on Ford, we'll talk to you a little you bit bet. later on. Uh, Mike, we haven't right, quite touched on uh, Macy's, but narrower than expected loss. Uh, Ecom up 53, uh, gross margin 23.6. We were looking for something more like 20. Yeah. Uh, so the battle continues to, to pivot and adapt to a model that um, obviously is a much different one than the classic department store model we're used to. Yeah, for sure. No surprise, really, to see that kind of year-on-year -year gain in e-commerce. Almost every chain's been reporting that, and you don't have the absolute numbers. What's interesting is how the market you know, now treats 
Macy's. It's, you know, trading at seven and change. It bottomed below five back in the, in the spring. It still was at 17 before this whole crisis. There's, you know, a two-point-something billion-dollar market cap. It trades at 10% of, of trailing sale. I mean, it's kind of being priced by the market as this, this you know, kind of zombie-type uh, uh, business. You have $7 billion in debt on top of it. But it's making it through. And now it seems as if it's basically got a little bit of a cushion to, to operate and try to pull whatever uh, levers they can. And obviously in shrink mode, trying to narrow a little bit of the focus merchandising wise. So uh, it is it is interesting. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the retailers we're going to want to hear a lot about what August was like after they closed the books on the quarter, because that seems to be the big uh, the big debate point right now is whether things did soften up at that in that month. Then you got guests. Um, hey, uh, David, I'm here. Uh, reinstate, yeah. Re- yeah. Yep. Reinstate, reinstating Go the ahead, dividend. Carl. Revenues up 42. Uh, obviously, revenues down 42 on the store closures and reduced demand. But interesting to see a dividend come back from a troubled retailer and stocks up double digit uh, pre market, as we said. Yeah, although so much of this does seem dependent on their ability to generate online sales, the digital channel. Uh, you know, we, we noted it as well last week with Tiffany, which were better than anticipated numbers. But when online looks amazing because as a percentage of overall sales, it is far larger than it's ever been. But of course, the overall sales number has come down to a level that it hasn't seen in a long time. As you take a look at shares of guests, which are going to be up, uh, as you see, quite nicely when we get started uh, with the open a couple of minutes from now. Mike, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the number of re- the market cap of these all these retailers added up doesn't come anywhere near. Uh, well, I mean, we do the Tesla comparisons, throw throw Amazon into yeah. the mix or even a pure play like a Home Depot or a Costco, which have benefited during this period of time. Yeah, or Target or any of those. I mean, that the kind of winners are uh, absolutely dominate the market value. That being said, if you look at, you know, consumer discretionary as a sector and just equal weight the whole thing, it has been improving. There's no doubt that the market's saying, look, things are going to come back to a certain you know, higher percentage of, you know, uh, 2019 levels than we thought before. Uh, And it seems like, you know, there there is a little bit of room for people to get more confidence about, uh, you know, the the, the near term strength in the the consumer. What's interesting is um, all of these things were priced for some kind of secular decline beforehand. And so, but, you know, the same dynamic that's taking all the digital winners uh, up to these unprecedented valuations is also adding extra punishment for these guys. So it's an interesting part of the market where it wasn't as if things were great and then we got this shock. Things were already on a slow slide, accelerated, put them in crisis mode, made them maybe in many cases, you know, take on more debt. And now it's what comes next. Carl. Yeah, it is fascinating. You know, um, we've been waiting to see the knock on effects of the expiration of those employment benefits in the month of August. Uh, but Visa said U.S. payment volume growth was pretty steady in August, up seven versus up eight in July. Uh, and so we'll see if that changes. Um, we have seen some downticks in consumer confidence. Gallup today says a third of Americans are worried about losing their jobs. But so far, the hard data uh, has not necessarily disappointed. There's the opening bell and a look at uh, Brett this morning. As NVIDIA, guys, is going to lead us at the open up 6%. Uh, another price target increase. I think it's a street high over at B of A 650, uh, largely on gaming, but I think the call is a little more broad than that, Mike. But certainly uh, they did have some gaming announcements yesterday in terms of chips, and we're really starting to see 
just what the battle is going to look like regarding NVIDIA, AMD, and, and, and Intel, which has become uh, quite obviously the laggard in that space. Right. And the, this call is uh, a lot of it, like we were talking about before, is essentially, well, I guess I have to ratchet it up, up the valuation assumptions here. Um, of A basically saying that we're willing to put a price target of 46 times forward earnings uh, X, uh, that's calendar year 22, by the way, 46 times 2022 earnings at the high end of the recent historical range. Um, where the recent historical range, of course, was not achieved when this company had a $350 billion market cap. So it's basically saying this market can't get enough of the winners, the, the, the acknowledged winners, and we're willing to ride it up there and, and, and assume that the market's going to stay in that mode for a while. Um, and, you know, 46 times forward earnings X cash is, is you know, stretching to get you to, uh, to a price target. But the market's not flinching uh, ahead of that. So, uh, you know, it's not to say it's, uh, it's wrong. It's just uh, shows you how the psychology kind of feeds on itself as the market uh, just, you know, scales these heights. You know, Mike, I see names like this with the currency, obviously, at their disposal that is so rich at this point. And uh, as we enter uh, sort of this fall period um, prior to the election, uh, end of year, you know, I do wonder about M&A. Obviously, when I talk to the practitioners, uh, many people say things are getting busier, but we'll see if that actually does result in announcements. But Man, if you are a company like that, you know, I go back to the period again in the late 90s. You remember, I mean, JDS Uniphase using its stock price to do an enormous deal. Or, I mean, I can go through so many. Global Crossing, Quest, and then, of course, the greatest of all, AOL Time Warner. But there are opportunities here to use these pieces of paper that are being so highly valued by the market to get things done if you're looking to consolidate in some yeah, areas. pieces of paper plus very inexpensive debt and you know a lot of these companies also have just piled up a, a bunch of cash so there's no doubt about it and it's another one of those things where you say well it seems like maybe things are getting a little over aggressive but it's also just a bull market doing bull market things i mean that you that's the kind of life cycle that you see here confidence spreads valuations go up you know tesla can do a five billion dollar equity raise and not even feel it in the market cap really and that in itself creates a, uh, you know, a stronger company and greater flexibility for them. So um, it goes till it doesn't. But I absolutely believe you're right that M&A has been a little bit of a, of a lagging piece of, uh, of all this. And you think all the ingredients are in place for something, you know, getting bigger on that front. Yeah. As we watch yet again, uh, many of the names that we've uh, w- watched every day go up. Apple backing off uh, its initial move higher, but it is above $2.3 trillion in market value now. Uh, Facebook again up. Amazon is also, you know, a, a 92% gain for the for this year is what we're talking about with uh, with Amazon. Uh, it's truly stunning. And of course, we talked a lot about Mr. Bezos's net worth, not to mention his ex-wife. Uh, guys, on the subject of deals, worth mentioning TikTok. Of course, the latest reports yesterday saying that uh, that. Things have stalled a bit. Uh, not a surprise. As I indicated the other day, though, I mean, my sourcing on this, unfortunately, is sort of not to share too much, but has has gone a little cold. But uh, you know, uh, having watched my share of M and A, when you are dealing with a level of complexity, first of all, that they were to begin with in terms of just the software code, the 15 million lines of software code that that powers TikTok, the AI behind it. The fact that it takes not just strong signals, but weak signals to help deliver things to people that they want and keep them engaged. Uh, and you've got to take a snapshot of that code and then transfer it over within a year 
uh, you get the updates. But then you add on, of course, this latest move over the weekend from the Chinese government that throws into sort of certain questions about the ability to even have those updates available to you or even take the code at all. Uh, that's a key question here. And it's no wonder. And I think I indicated, Carl, the other day when we were talking about this, you do have to wonder as a potential buyer of this asset how you view all of this. The U.S. government, which seems to be sticking with the September 15th deadline in terms of potentially saying no more, although, again, that remains somewhat unclear, and then the Chinese government. So here we are. We'll see whether they can figure their way through this. And I'm talking about Microsoft in partnership with Walmart and, of course, Oracle in partnership with a number of, uh, of financial partners as well. But uh, complexity and lack of certainty are certainly the enemies of getting a deal done. Uh, there's plenty of that. Uh, after hearing that a deal was uh, imminent from various reporting uh, over the past couple of days, and maybe one still is, but uh, you've added a lot in terms of understanding, our understanding of just how complex uh, the deal is going to have to be to, to complete it. Um, guys, we got record highs on the S&P as we got initially 35.41. NASDAQ 12K, uh, another record high there. Zillow Group, Mike, uh, a record high. As uh, we get an upgrade uh, today from Deutsche Bank, they go to buy. Uh, 106 target implies 20% upside. We did get mortgage apps today. Again, down week on week, but up 28 year on year. And Deutsche's uh, thesis is that we are going to see a lot more listings, uh, seller interest from uh, Zillow groups. So the whole mobility argument, uh, the, the polling data that basically confirms there is a lot of mobility in the country right now, largely from urban to rural which is something that uh, Spencer Raskoff, who no longer runs Zillow, but uh, uh, still knows the company very well a few months ago, said wasn't clear if that was actually happening. But I think it's, it is becoming clear that it is. Yeah, and it, what's certainly clear is that it's become a higher intensity, higher turnover, more competitive housing market, which means, you know, whatever the, the, the macro inputs are in terms of mortgage rates, in terms of, you know, weekly uh, mortgage applications or whatever, uh, it means that people are much more focused on it. And if Zillow being kind of a content company, it just creates that much more I engagement. And, you know, with everything, it's all about, well, is the market already paid for, you know, for that, uh, that scenario or not? And uh, it's not really clear. The call today is that it's getting a little bit of traction uh, up four or five percent right now. And it's funny because I'm not sure that, you know, six months ago when everybody was sort of sketching out what are going to be the shutdown winners, they would have necessarily said Zillow, um, because I'm not sure we thought it was going to last long enough for people to basically make life decisions to, you know, actually go go and bid up houses uh, in huge numbers like they are, Carl. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and of course, um, you know, uh, all of that, so many dynamics, David, right now are contingent on a vaccine. Uh, we did have Fauci yesterday say, look, if, if there does appear to be um, a winner in phase three and the FDA sees reason to put an emergency use authorization early, there's a moral imperative to give those people uh, who are in the trial on the placebo side access to that drug. Deutsche's got a nice chart out today looking at the overall odds when a drug is in phase three, the percentage of uh, approval is actually pretty high. So the fact that we've got three solid candidates is probably one reason why Fauci on the Today Show today reiterated he does see a vaccine available and approved by the end of the year. Which would be great news. And as we know, also manufacturing has been moving ahead as well. Uh, with the idea being that if and when it does get approved, it will be available almost immediately and you can start to inoculate frontline healthcare workers, for example, 
people who are more vulnerable in terms of those populations, and that will be uh, very important. Um, you know, getting people enrolled in these trials is, is not an easy thing. You talk, you have, you're dealing with large populations. It's not like these phase two where it's fairly small. And that goes as well for the monoclonal antibodies, for the antivirals that we've been following also, and how quickly they can sort of really fill out those phase three trials. But uh, Carl, that's great news. We can only hope uh, that one or more of them prove effective in phase three. But then the question, I think, still will become how many people refuse to take it. You know, you read and hear a lot about these sort of anti-vaxxers out there or perhaps others who will feel like this was rushed. And that's kind of going to have to be something of a concern because once you get a vaccine, you certainly want to get as many people vaccinated as possible to try to create some sort of broader immunity. Yeah, yeah I'll be looking I'll, for... Um, I'll go, sorry, go ahead. Go I was ahead, just going to say, in terms of... Uh, the market. I think it's a premise of what the what the market is looking at. That in fact we're within the window where there's going to be multiple, you know, solutions, vaccines getting closer, uh, treatments, and and all the rest of it. Not that you know that there's a silver bullet assumed, but um, to me it's the it's the way that we've been kind of substantiating a lot of this rally. It probably would change the mix of, uh, of stocks doing well and leading uh, if, in fact, we did get very much uh, an imminent, clear uh, vaccine solution that was going to be uh, distributed pretty widely. But I don't think it's, it's necessarily one of these kind of binary upside surprise moments if, in fact, you get the, the approval because we've been handicapping every incremental step of this thing along the way. And I don't think there's a lot of doubters out there anymore left that are, that are kind of moving the incremental price in the market that say we're not going to get something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, certainly it would have large implications, though, for things like movie theaters, David. Yeah. AMC's up 20 percent as they're going to open uh, have 70 percent of their theaters open by this weekend. Uh, New Jersey going to indoor dining, uh, I think, by Friday. And then I saw Maryland yesterday, Governor Hogan, uh, going to a different phase of reopening in which live performances uh, will be uh, open, I think, at 25 percent uh, starting either this Friday or next. So uh, incremental movement on the reopening uh, front, although I think Goldman did have a report yesterday. Jan Hatzius argued that to a large degree, the, the reopenings we've seen uh, appear to be flattening out. And the question at the top of the report was, is this it? So we'll see whether or not we can truly loosen up the spigot uh, for states that have already done some. Yeah. And we'll also wait and see how many people actually are willing to dine indoors when they're given the opportunity without a vaccine, obviously, being out there at this point uh, or the antivirals. How many people are willing to go to uh, to a live performance or even a movie theater? Some will, obviously, uh, and others will choose not to based perhaps on their level of vulnerability but we don't want to forget the, the virus is still out there. Thankfully, the uh, cases nationally have been trending down recently, but we're still talking, what, 40,000, I think, the other day, a thou over 1,000 deaths. Uh, they are still pretty large numbers, certainly very large when looked at globally in terms of our percentage overall, even today, uh, Carl. So, you know, um, they're not going to open pools, unfortunately, in New York. That's the one thing that I've been focused on. They're going to open gyms, but not pools. I'm trying to figure that one out. Yeah. But, I, you know, who knows? Uh, yes. I, I, I saw Equinox in Brooklyn uh, welcoming consumers back, but you're still doing your open water swimming. So we'll get there <laughs> yeah. one way or I'll another. I'll be in the wetsuit uh, again David. soon, man. Yeah, I'll be in the wetsuit again <laughs> soon, but you got to keep going. <laughs> uh, 
Yes. Um, ADP did disappoint. Uh, Ten-year below 68 basis points. Let's get to Rick Santelli this morning. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. And indeed, ADP did disappoint. But there wasn't a huge amount of movement based on that disappointment, which really is the story. Said so if you're looking to ADP for the answer to Friday's number, you're probably not going to get what you want. And I think that the market paid little attention. As a matter of fact, here we sit on change. The reason that's important, let's go to a chart that goes to last week when we had our high watermark on Friday for 10-year note yields. And you can see that we have drifted. Today we are starting to hold. Maybe we'll break that three-day trend of lower yields. And if you look at the VIX against 10-year since March 1st, because we've all been talking about the VIX, the cost of protection is going up. But is it really going up because of market forces or is it going up because of election and political forces? In either case, I really like the fact that it seems to pay quite a bit of attention to the nervousness associated when you get a blip higher in rates. So we want to pay attention to that chart in particular. When it comes to China, we all know that phase one, there has been various deals and shipments of grains. Uh, I'm not sure that that's important to everybody, but I'll tell you, it certainly seems to be important to foreign exchange markets, the relationship, because we see that the dollar currently is at 16 months lows against the onshore Chinese yuan, going back to May of 2019. But if you overlay that same time period with the euro currency, you can see the differentiation there, that the dollar isn't as popular, isn't as strong, and the euro currency really does remain the one currency that has some surprising strength on its own over the last 10 months. And finally, when we consider the fact that we're going to have some important data at the top of the hour, uh, the yield curve is something we want to pay very close attention to. Many guests have continued to point out that it is indeed steeper, even though it's given up some ground. Just a few sessions ago, it was at near 60 basis points. Now it's hovering uh, around 54, 55. But the point here is that there's going to be some ebbs and flows, but all things being equal, whether you're in a bull market where rates are going down or a bear market where rates are going up, it certainly seems though the steepness is holding somewhat constant. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Uh, Rick Santelli. I got most of the Dow components in the green today. Let's get to Bob Bassani as well. Hey, Bob. Hello, Carl, and happy Wednesday, everybody. Very familiar scenario, an up day and up open and it's been this way for several weeks now and the same components are leading it's the same semiconductor stocks are having a good day a lot of new highs in the semiconductor list uh consumer discretionary as well industrials a little bit better um but again look at that banks and energy just have been doing nothing nothing for weeks on end they're not participating in this rally in the slightest extent and that's a little bit discouraging. New high list, it's the same familiar names. Every day we put up Nike and Amazon and Walmart and uh, Alphabet and Amazon and Apple. They're all there every single day. What I don't see is a big expansion. Only 100 new highs on the NYSE today. There's 2,500 stocks on the NYSE. Uh, you want to see 300, 400, something like that. We're not seeing it right now. The semis, yes. Okay, so again, every day, what the other part of the new high list is always the semiconductor names. So you can see uh, some of the big names like NVIDIA always hit new highs, Broadcom, Qualcomm, Advanced Micro, all at new highs again. But where's the rest of the market? It's just not there in terms of the, uh, the internal advances that you want to see. And that includes really the advanced decline line, which has been very sloppy uh, the last few weeks. Um, we are frothy. Uh, we keep 
grasping for superlatives to describe how frothy things are. One of the ways you look at the market internals is a relative strength indicator. This is a two-week indicator, 14 days actually, that uh, when you're over 70, that means you're overbought. When you're over 80, you're really overbought. And the reason these are important is when you get to over 80, it means you have to be up every single day for weeks on end, essentially, to be in those kinds of levels. And the market just doesn't do that. Historically, you start topping out at some point. Uh, and usually these are associated with at least short-term market tops. The S&P 500 itself is at 80, which is a very, very rare occurrence. You don't see that very often. The last time that happened was January 2018. Remember, we had this huge rally at the end of 2017. We're up 10%. And when it hit 80, that was a short-term market top. So that's why you watch these kinds of market internals for signs of overbought, or oversold indicators. At extremes, they're usually useful. In the middle, perhaps not so much. Uh, we've been talking about the U.S. markets. They're at new highs. But I want to remind everybody that a, the majority of the rest of the world is also in a notable uptrend, maybe not as steep as the United States. But we've had some amazing moves here. We're right near 52-week highs on the other major world economies. Uh, Germany's, I'm talking about the stock market, Germany, Japan, South Korea, there's the Shanghai Stock Exchange. These are all Two, three percent from their 52-week highs as well. That's close enough for anybody to say we're essentially at new highs. The reason this is important is these four uh, countries, and you throw in the United States, which is half of the world market capitalization, this is about, with the U.S., these four countries, this is about 80 percent of the market capitalization of the world stock market. So uh, the global stock market's doing well, but not everybody. Uh, if you go into a little bit below the, the top market leaders here, you know, Southern Europe is doing nothing. I mean, they, they rallied and topped out uh, a couple months ago. And Spain, Italy, France, they've just been moving sideways to slightly down. So is Brazil. So is Mexico not doing much. So is Thailand. So has Malaysia. So, yes, these are smaller market capitalizations in terms of how much money is involved in them. But not the whole world is moving in one lockstep. Some countries are having some real problems. Guys, back to you. OK, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani, uh, with a look overall at the market. Earlier this morning, we told you about a hostile bid from uh, U.S.-based Altice USA along with Rogers Communications, this is for a Canadian company called Kojiko. There it is, uh, up 32%. Why? Well, it's 106.53 Canadian is what they're offering. By the way, that is nothing compared to what they're offering the Audet family for their ownership interest, given they own super voting shares. They're offering them $612 million for a stake that was worth about 100, 100 I don't know, 150 or 100, less than $150 million. Uh, U.S. Uh, we got more on this deal uh, and uh, a lot more on Squawk in the Street straight ahead. China's competitor to WeWork is planning a backdoor listing on the Nasdaq later this year. Eunice Yoon has more on Ucommune. Eunice. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. Yes, the company is called Ucommune. It is the arch nemesis of WeWork here in China. And the company's founder told me that uh, the company is looking to raise some funds in order to expand overseas as well as here at home. Offices remain idle in China amid the pandemic, but this shared one in Beijing is fully rented out. Businessman Mao Daqing says his co-working company, Ucommune, has recovered to 70% occupancy after plunging to 40% at the height of the crisis. More and more people recognize the co-working actually helped them a lot uh, during and after the pandemics. A lot of companies, they reduce their size, 
They want to save the cost. Yu Commune is China's answer to WeWork. Like its U.S. rival, the Beijing company leases office space and rents it to small businesses looking for a flexible workspace. But this veteran of China's real estate and hospitality industries believes his model is different from WeWork's because of its services. You should make yourself as a management company. New Commune has 185 shared offices like this in 47 cities across Greater China and Singapore, and one in New York. About a fifth of its revenues are from professional photography and other services. Renting a U Commune desk in Beijing costs $285 a month for a day, four bucks. That includes access to IPR advice, facial recognition for security, and tips on how to navigate China's often Byzantine registration process for new companies. Mao currently uh, has yet to make a profit, and the company had hoped to be able to list on the NYSE. It ended up pulling the IPO and is now pursuing this backdoor listing for the NASDAQ later this year, uh, David. But I think it really shows uh, just how challenging uh, the situation is uh, for the whole co-working industry, even though uh, the, um, the founder himself is quite upbeat about co-working in China. Carl? Uh, fascinating stuff, Eunice. Thank you for that. Our Eunice Yoon uh, in Beijing this morning. Later on today on Squawk Alley, do not miss NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, uh, 11.30 a.m. Eastern, right here on CNBC exclusively. A lot of questions about the upcoming NFL season, COVID safety, and a lot more. Don't go anywhere. We're back in a minute. Shares of Altice USA are up uh, rather nicely this morning. This after it unveiled a hostile bid for Canada's Kojiko in partnership with Rogers Communication. Altice wants the 1.1 million subs here in the U.S., and that's what it would get if successful. We will talk to Dexter Goy, Altice's CEO, about the strategy to try to actually get this hostile deal to the finish line in the next hour of Squawk on the Street. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 